Good morning. It's great to be with you. And uh, let me say thank you to the sound people for uh, making sure that the bass guitar is in the mix as an electric bassist myself. Thank you very much. I've, I've been in many situations where I've watched the bass player, but I don't really know what the bass player is doing. So, so you know, we got, we got to stick together. So our, our text this morning is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Colossians 3, 1 to 17. Uh, I promise you I'm not going to talk about it, all 17 verses, but I am going to read all 17 verses right now. This is from the NIV. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and it is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Lord, by the power of your spirit, open our hearts and minds to hear from you this morning. Drop any walls that we have. Work on any resistance we have. Help us to be receptive to you, hearing from you, and being not just hearers of your word, but faithful doers. We praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. Chances are, that if you come to Antioch, a church where Ken Weitzman is the pastor, that you're probably okay with what you would call a culture-engaged Christianity. A, a Christianity where it's not just about what we do on Sunday, but it's very much about what we do once we leave here. 
the, the other days of the week. So talking about things like culture and politics and art, etc., those are things that we ought to be talking about. Those are areas in which we ought to be engaged. The thing is that sometimes uh, when you're that kind of person, and if you're someone like me who's written a book with politics in the title, you then sometimes run into texts like this one where you have this language in verse 2 talking about setting your mind on things above and not on earthly things. And if you were sometimes having a conversation with Christians who are not quite as inclined to be as culturally engaged in their Christianity as you might be if you're a person, an Antioch-type person, this might be a text where they say, well, what do you think about that text? Because doesn't this text say that we ought to have a different set of priorities than the priorities you think that we ought to have? I have to admit, I've been among those who, although I teach and write and speak about culturally engaged Christianity all the time, running into a text like this is like, hmm, what do you do with this text? Well, what we do is we ask the question, what's the text getting at? And is the text really something that says, maybe you've gone too far with your culturally engaged Christianity, or maybe it means something else? Well, how do we find out? We find out first by thinking about what was Paul after anyway in the entire book of Colossians? And I just want to point out a couple of verses that help us to understand that, and then something about the verses that lead us into chapter 3, because I think that helps set the stage for how we ought to think properly about this text. In chapter 1, in verses 13 and 14, he's saying to the Colossians, For he, Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he then goes on in the rest of chapter 1 to talk about Christ's supremacy. This Jesus that saved you, he is amazing. He is supreme, and you don't need anyone else. You don't need anything else. He is enough. But the Colossians were in a situation where there are people who seem to think, well, maybe what you don't need is just Jesus, but you need Jesus plus. Jesus plus some extra rituals. Jesus plus some extra secret knowledge that we can give to you. We being other people in the religious marketplace of ideas who would say, Jesus is nice, but if you just come over my way, I've got some secrets to tell you. Secrets you really want to know if you really want the best life that you can have with God. And Paul is saying this is not what you need to be doing. So, if you look at what's going on in chapter 2, verses 16, all the way to the end of the chapter, he's basically talking about the fact that there were other religious leaders who were saying, you either need knowledge or specific rituals, and these knowledge and rituals, nobody, if you read all the commentators, they don't know exactly what it was, but it was some combination of things that had at least some reference to things that seemed like 
Jewish traditional religion, and then things that were from other religions in the marketplace in Colossae. And it was about knowledge, and it was about certain kinds of very strict disciplinary practices on your body. And if you did these things, then you're doing the right thing. And what I want to note about what Paul is saying there is the language he uses here, he he talks about these things also being earthly. So when you get to the beginning of chapter 3, you have to always ask with any chapter, what came before this? And what came before this was this entire discourse where Paul is saying, listen, there are people who want to tell you that you, need, you can only have Jesus with a plus sign attached to it. The plus sign is leading you away from Jesus rather than leading you to Jesus. If he started the book talking about the supremacy of Jesus, then why would you need anything else? So, beginning at chapter 3 then, he says, since then you've been raised with Christ. The point is, I've told you about this great salvation that you have. Jesus, second member of the Trinity, has come in the flesh. He's died for you. He's conquered death. He's triumphed over God's enemies through the cross. You are raised with him. The things that he says in verses 1 through 4 about Christ, three things in particular I want to emphasize, what they tell us is not actually that the point in being a Christian is to run away from engaging God's world. In fact, actually, if you take what's in verses 1 to 4 seriously, you can't really have a kind of culture escaping Christianity. Look at the things he says. You've been raised with Christ. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And he's telling them to set your mind, your vision on him. So, things to notice about this. He's talking about Jesus as resurrected in a body. You know, Christmas time rolls around. We start talking about words like incarnation. When you talk about incarnation, you're talking about Jesus being in the flesh. Sometimes people say, God with skin on. Here's what you can't escape if you take incarnation seriously and you take Jesus being resurrected in a body seriously. You can't escape the fact that what God is saying with the incarnation is a very loud repeat of what he says about his creation in Genesis 1.31, that it's his very good creation. In fact, it's so much of his very good creation that he takes on the crown of creation, human beings, being, being human. And in doing that, what is he telling us? He's telling us that his world matters to him. Very often when people talk about salvation, they talk about it like it's a rescue mission, like it's about escaping from the world that God has made. Yet Jesus comes as a baby in the flesh. He's actually born. He eats, he drinks, he sleeps. When he dies, he bleeds. And when he's raised, you can touch him. 
You remember what happens. Thomas isn't there. And so Thomas isn't there. And, and you know, before we, we give Thomas too much of a hassle, we would ask ourselves, well, if you weren't there, would you have believed it? Right? You might have been, you might have been doubting too. So the thing is, so, so, so they were like, we've seen the Lord. Thomas was like, I just can't. They were all devastated by the death of Jesus. So it makes sense in some ways that he doubted and remained in his devastation. He just couldn't believe it until he could see it for himself. Well, Thomas's lucky day came. Jesus appears while Thomas is with them. He says, Thomas, here I am. And you know what, Thomas? Put your hands right here. And in fact, Thomas, put your hand in my side. I, I imagine Jesus like slapping his side where you can hear it. Put your hand in my side, Thomas. It's really me. And here's the whole point. Jesus being in the flesh is God saying his, that he's reclaiming his world, including humans. And in being in the flesh and being raised in the flesh, he's affirming his commitment to his world. He's telling us the world matters. Now, if it was the case, actually, that the Bible had, you know, this some text that had been lost and all of a sudden somebody discovered it and it said something like this. It said, you know, practical joker that he was. Jesus told the disciples, now, you all know that I'm a very sophisticated hologram. It's what I am. And you know that, I mean, I'm raised, I'm back, but I'm not like in a body. Of course I'm not. I'm a hologram. So, so guys, when Thomas is back, right, don't let on about this. So what I want you to do is, I want you all to, to, to just you know, be in on it so that when I tell Thomas to touch me and he tries to touch me, he touches nothing. It's just... But of course, there's no text that tells us that, that tells us that Jesus was a sophisticated hologram. No, it tells us Jesus is raised in a body. He even eats with them. If Jesus is raised, then God is shouting to us that his world matters. And our life of faithfulness to him cannot be a life of faithfulness that says his world does not matter. So he's resurrected. And then it talks about the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. The idea of Jesus being at the right hand of God is the seat of authority, the seat of power. He's the one who reigns. Now, because he's the one who reigns, that that means it's telling us where the authority lies. And the authority lies with him and not with anyone else. And if the authority lies with him, what he's again saying to the Colossians is, the people that are telling you that you need something else besides Jesus, they want you to think really that they are the ones who are the authority and not Jesus. And here's the thing. We're always tempted to make someone else the authority. I mean, it it shouldn't be a surprise because these other people who want to be pretenders for ultimate authority, well, often we can see them every day or we can listen to them. They're closer to us. And sometimes when they're closer to us and they're really persuasive, sometimes people think, oh, maybe I ought to be listening to you. 
And Paul is saying, don't give them the authority. Jesus who reigns, who has conquered death, who's at the right hand of the Father, he is the one who reigns. And if he is the one who reigns, then take your cues from him, not from people that are telling you that you need someone else other than the one who's been raised from the dead and who is reigning at the right hand of the Father and who is going to return and set everything right. You need to be in submission to him. And then he tells them, he says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. When he's saying to set your mind on things above, the point is, who's above? Jesus, who is raised and who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, he's saying, your perspective ought to be determined by looking to the one who is resurrected and is at the right hand of the Father, the one who has saved you, the one who's made your forgiveness possible, this is the one who gives you your lenses for how you look at everything in the world. To look up doesn't mean to to literally just walk around looking at the sky all the time. It does mean that the lens through which you see your life, the lens through which you go about life, is one where you are having Jesus at the center. He's the one that determines your prescription. So that how you see life, how you go about life, is determined by your commitment to him and not by these extra things that these other leaders, these other religious marketplace people, by these other things that they say, you must have these things. So when he's saying set your mind above, he doesn't mean So stop caring about politics, stop caring about culture, stop caring about law, stop caring about art, stop caring about medicine. He's saying care about them through the lens of Christ. Go about your life through the lens of Christ. So what's happening in those first four verses of Colossians 3 is setting the stage for reminding them Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. Don't add anything to him. Let him direct your life. So he sets that stage. And then he tells them, first, to put off a whole series of vices. And it's interesting the language he uses there. So verse 5 Put to to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now, somebody could say, aha, didn't you just say that earthly stuff was about those extra religious things? I did say that. Well, what does he mean by earthly nature in this case? Let's look at what he's talking about. So earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. All right, so I'm going to invite you to take a quiz just by your answers or just by a show of hands. All right, so I'm just going to ask you if uh, three things are bad, just in themselves, okay? All right, so um, raise your hand if you agree with this statement. Sex is bad. 
Okay, no one said that. Okay, all right, all right, all right. Um, being a human being with, all, with various kinds of desires is a bad thing. You know, if there were crickets, I'd, I'd hear them now. Number three, having wealth is bad. Okay, <laughs> there's no one. All right, so here's the whole point. He's talking about sex here. He's talking about desires here. He's talking about wealth here, right? But he's talking about them in ways that they've gone wrong. And, and, and I do that just to help you to think about this. When he is talking about earthly, which is really very similar to other texts when they talk about the term worldly, what's going on here is not the problem with those things in themselves, but it's how those things are directed how people use those things, how people make gods out of those things. To be earthly or to be worldly is not that you care about God's world. It's that you care wrongly about God's world. It's that your caring about God and his world is determined by someone other than God. This happens all the time. Sex, power, money, all manner of desires. People take those things, they magnify them into gods, and they serve them as gods with disregard for the God whose idea they were, and we get all kinds of madness. And we see people again and again and again and again serving idolatrous versions of sex and power and money and on it goes and we see the same stories over and over again people who worship them think it's going well for them and then they they start to experience that strange thing that happens with idols which is that idols keep asking for more and more while returning less and less and they keep living their lives trying to get what the idol gave them the first time when there was a transaction. But it gets less and less, and they get more distressed by their distorted life living, worshiping an idol. So Paul's point here is not stop caring about God's world. Ignore God's world. Escape God's world. No, his point is, now is the time, because you are looking at Christ, Christ who has saved you, who has reclaimed you, who's reclaiming his world, because you are with him, now there's no need to live like you were living. It makes perfect sense when people don't belong to God for them to live like people who don't belong to God. I think sometimes when we're surprised about things that go wrong in the world, it's because we've been duped by civilization. We think that because civilization has happened, that civilization is like something like salvation. And so then what we see, when we see people 
doing horrible things. Wait, but they had money, but they had education. They had everything the world offered, and they turned into a horror story. I don't understand how that could happen. Well, post-Genesis 3, it's really not a surprise. Because ever since Genesis 3, humans, apart from God, are masters of living in, as distorted human beings. And sometimes the distortions are subtle. Sometimes they're gigantic. What civilization does is give us the impression that, well, we can kind of bridle some of these distortions. We can kind of control things, and we can have a kind of orderly life together. But wars still happen. Murders still happen. Abuse still happens, etc., etc., etc. Why? Why? Because ever since the fall... Humans live like things have gone off the rails, because they have. But if you belong to Christ, you are now in a new reality. And because they're in this new reality, Paul is telling them, move away from the way that you lived. Now you can see, because you've got this lens through Christ, you can see those distorted things for what they are. Those distorted things are like the myth of the sirens in Greek mythology. Do you know the story about the sirens, right? Go, going through the river, and there are these nymph-like creatures. As it goes through the river, you listen, and they, they, they're seductive. And what do they do? The sirens lead you to be dashed on the rocks, to be a casualty. That's, what, that's why when people talk about the term siren song, a siren song is something that is sweet, attractive, and deadly. And the fact of the matter is, is that life apart from God is being continually susceptible to the siren songs that are out there. And now Paul is saying you no longer are susceptible to siren songs because of Christ. You no longer need to be duped by siren songs because of Christ. And so he's saying, put off the way that you lived. Instead of being masters of vice, put off these distorted ways of living in God's world. So, Verses 5 through 8, he's telling them, 5 through 9, he's telling them, don't live like you used to. You don't have to live that way. Now, I need to make a slight statement here. Am I saying that once a person becomes a Christian, now there are no problems? Now there are no struggles? Yes. Come to Jesus, and perfection is yours, right? That's called, you know, like the perfection in this life is yours. In other words, you get to experience what some of us would call a realized eschatology. Eschatology is how everything wraps up in the end when God establishes his kingdom. That you come to Jesus, and immediately everything is resolved. Okay, no, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that there's a new reality that we, into which we enter when we become Christians. You know, in Romans 8, that's part of Paul's whole point. 
Now you're in a new reality. You're people in whom God's Spirit lives. And because the Spirit lives in you, now you're able to obey God. Now you have the power to go towards God rather than always veering away from God. Now you're in a new reality. And in that new reality, you're in a trajectory of transformation. I mean, I wish I could tell you, no, actually, I'm here today to tell you that coming to Jesus means coming to immediate perfection. But we have a hard time saying that that's what the Bible's telling us. And I'm not here to tell you that lot, okay? I am here to tell you that the good news of the gospel is being in a process of transformation that culminates in one day on the other side being free from any struggle and being perfect. But not yet. Not yet, but we are in a process. We can say God, yes to God more, more, really more and more as we grow. So he tells them, start saying yes and say no to the way that you used to live. In the rest of the chapter, He's telling them about this new life. So, starting, really, it's, it's, it's a sentence in verses 9 through 11 I want to talk about. He says, do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self, the old self ruled by the enemy, with its practices, and put on the new self, which is, notice this is language of process, being renewed, in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Being renewed. You're in a process. Becoming like what it means to be a human in the image of God. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, before I go on, I have to say something about ways that people can misread verse 11. No Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, Christ is all is in all. Some people might say, yes, because we're all Christians. Jesus is the center of our identity. Yes. Okay, yes so far. And because of that, then we really never need to talk about these things about race and ethnicity. That we really, you know, we, we talk about these things too much. It's being too divisive. Stop talking about it. Wrong. Wrong. Why is it wrong? Because Paul's point is you're right. You can't make any identity marker, ethnic or otherwise, a reason to elevate yourself above others. And you're all leveled by belonging to Christ. And you have that common identity in Christ. But here's the thing. That doesn't obliterate your particularity. You don't stop being what you are culturally. You don't stop being that. In fact, you, you know what this does? Because it removes the elevation of one identity over others, it means now we can really talk about it. Now we can really talk about it because, okay, none of us should be elevating this. None of us should be thinking that I'm better than them. What this says is, okay, maybe now I need to start recognizing ways I'm already tending to think I'm better than them. And maybe I need to start admitting ways I think subtle and maybe explicit I'm better than them. 
And now, because of Christ being central, we have the freedom, the space to say, okay, here's what we know. Humans are really good at finding identity markers as a means to exclude other people, as a means to oppress people, as a means to wipe out other people. They've been doing it ever since Adam said, the woman you gave me. Ever since then. I mean, by Genesis 6, it's on. Right? I mean, it's just like, wow, carnage. Seriously. But now, because of Christ, the way people make idols of their ethnic identity, their class identity, some other group identity, now those things are exposed. And those things have no place when Christ is all. So you can't make an idol out of those things, which means you actually have to start asking, am I making an idol of those things? Am I inhabiting ways where there's an idol of those things? And here's the fact of the matter if you live in the modern West, which we do. The modern West is constructed putting Europeans on top and everybody else below Europeans. It's just the way it is. And please, it's okay to admit it. You know why it's okay to admit it? Because anyone else who would have built the society would have put themselves on top. It's just what humans do. Look at world history. Where do you see in world history, well, now there was an equal society. Where do you see it? Where do you see any society that was built, they would say, you know, we want everyone to be level. Can't find it. Why? Because what humans do is find identity markers and exclude. That's why. But with Christ coming, we can expose that, and we can start asking, what are the ways that we are still dealing with that? What are the ways that we need to grow with that? And here's the thing. Because we're being renewed in knowledge of the image, because we're being reclaimed human beings, then we ought to have the courage to say, yes, we're going to talk about it. So often what I discover is the reason people don't want to talk about matters of race and ethnicity is because they think the temperature is going to go up. It will sometimes. Sometimes somebody's going to blow a cork. You're either going to blow a cork because they've been dealing with something for like a couple of decades and nobody's ever really asked them what they thought and then you asked them. And then here it comes. Don't leave when it comes. Because, because they'll probably expect you to leave. But if you're there, hey, you didn't leave. Why? Well, I, I want to know what's going on. I want to understand what happened. I, I, I want you to recognize that, that I, t I take this being a Christian seriously. And if I were the one blowing up, I hope somebody wouldn't just run off because I blew up. Because maybe people blow up because like, there are real problems that have happened. And they're not making things up. And so I might say, oh, but some people make things up. Yes, some people do. Most people, not so much. Give people the benefit of the doubt before you say they're experts in crying wolf. If we are being renewed 
And if we take our common identity in Christ seriously, then that common identity in Christ helps us to hold lightly all those other identity markers that we have. Because the point isn't to, okay, get, you know, like stop being what you are ethnically and culturally. I mean, you can try, I suppose, but that's probably not going to work out so well. The point isn't to stop doing that. The point is stop worshiping it. And stop making excuses for the ways that you might do it. And just bring it to the foot of the cross. And not just put it there, but that means actively living in ways that oppose that idolatry. Because of Christ, we can talk about these things. Because of Christ, we can say we're going to be the patient, courageous people who stick with that conversation rather than saying the heat's too much, let's just all commit to going to separate playgrounds and occasionally having a special service together. So, had to say that because people interpret those verses as meaning that that's the time to have a conspiracy of silence about race. Wrong. So, being renewed isn't just about the identity markers piece, but it's, it's entirely about a way of living that's living like God's always wanted human beings to be. You know, I mentioned the phrase reclaimed humans. And the reason I say that is, is that I don't think that when we talk about what it is to be saved that we use that kind of language uh, as much as we should. Very often when we use the word human, what we do is we use the word human as a way to talk about our deficiencies. It, but if you are a Christian, the way you think about human ought to be defined by the one who created humans. Which means that when you talk about your deficiencies, you're talking about being less than human. Not living up to what it is to be a human. And the point then is, what's going on with salvation? We're on a trajectory towards greater rehumanization. Salvation is a grand rehumanization project. God, in reclaiming his world, is of course reclaiming humans that have gone wrong. And now he's saying, you can start to move into a way that corresponds more to what I want you to be. So he tells them, verses 12 to 17, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. It's interesting, right? Like, put on a new way, a new suit of clothes. Have you ever had one of those, those moments where you, you, you put on some new attire and you think, man, I'm feeling, I feel like a new person. And maybe some of you, because, you know, you, you dressed a certain way for like a certain period of your life, and then you, you decided to, to switch your entire wardrobe. Sometimes people do this. And people say, you know, and then, you know, 10 years later, somebody says, well, you know, that was the moment when they started dressing this way, right? Well, I, I know that just to say, that's kind of what he's saying here with virtues. You had a way that you clothe yourselves with all manner of human distortion. And now clothe yourselves with ways that, that are character virtues that are proper to what it is to be a human. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have with one another. 
These aren't easy things to do consistently. Right? Have compassion. What does it mean to have compassion in a way where we really are compassionate for all human beings and not just the people who share our causes? That's not an easy thing to do. But this is what he's talking about. Compassion not just within their community, but outside that community as well. You know, he says over in Galatians, do, let's do good unto all people. He says, especially the household of the faith, but to all people. Our compassion should not have limits. When he talks about bearing with each other and forgiving grievances, this is also sometimes very difficult. Have you ever had a situation where you're pretty sure you forgave that person? And then you're going for a drive. And as you're going for a drive, the person you forgave comes to mind. And strangely, your disposition gets a little bit sour. Now, please understand, the reason I'm saying this is because I happened to have one of these experiences a couple of weeks ago. Someone I thought I had forgiven for something that had happened 30 years ago, okay, from in the neighborhood I grew up in. Uh, it's not personal. I, I haven't seen this person in probably 30 years, but I did see their name on Facebook when somebody said something about our elementary school. Well, that kind of brought them onto my horizon. And I thought, you know, I, I've forgiven all these people. And so I'm driving somewhere, and this person came to mind, and strangely, you know, retribution was kind of on my mind when it came to this person. It's like, you know what? I mean, that's, that's what was on my mind. It's like, it's like, be glad you don't see me, right? So, so, so but, but, but as I was thinking about that, you know, the Lord brought to my mind, do you really want the best for that person? Do you love that person? Do you want their flourishing? And I had to ask myself, do I really want this person's flourishing or do I want to have a version of forgiveness that still gives me at least the, op the, the, the uh, space for having uh, imaginative retribution? Well, the fact of the matter is, no, no, that's not what it means to bear with one another and to forgive one another. What it means is you say, you don't owe me anything. You don't owe me anything. You don't even have to apologize to me. I mean, it's nice if you apologize, but you don't have to apologize. You're free. I hold nothing over you. I don't want anything from you to pay me back. You're free, and I want you to flourish. That's the forgiveness that he's talking about. And compassion, forgiveness, being people of peace, all of these things are things that require us to be going about our lives every day in God's world, everywhere we go, to live as people who've put on a new set of clothes, a new set of clothes that's corresponding to what it is to be an image bearer. And if we're living like those people who are image bearers, you know what we can't be? Going back to my 
earlier point at the beginning of the sermon. We can't be people who say, I specialize in dismissing God's world. Because the fact is that we do all this as embodied persons in God's very material creation. It's all over every area of our life. If we are going to be the people of God, people who are reclaimed humans, people who are keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, giving us a lens for seeing the world the way that God wants us to see it, people who recognize we don't have to add anything, people who are resisting idolatry, if we're going to do that, we have to be those who go out into God's world and everywhere we go, people see marks of us being people who are growing in their humanness every day. And if we're growing in our humanness every day, we're going to be people in our places of work, in the context where we have our hobbies, if you're involved in medicine, if you're involved in law, all those things, you're going to be those who are bringing rehumanization to those domains. That's why, at the end of the matter, what this is all about is being people who are heavenly-minded for earthly good. That's the matter. That's, that's the point of the matter. The point about being a heavenly-minded person is not being a great escape artist from God's world. Instead, it's about being a growing engagement artist in God's world. This is the opportunity that we have every day because we have been reclaimed by Christ, by Christ who is enough. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word, which tells us that you have reclaimed your world. We're not left to fend for ourselves. You have made it possible for us to be reconciled to you and not just to have a vertical reconciliation, but to also to live horizontally in your world as people who are becoming more and more human all the time. Lord, help us to be those who are putting off idolatries, putting off distorted ways of living in your world, and living like those who are putting on what it means to be more and more human all the time. Lord, we need you to help us to do this. Thank you for your spirit who lives in us, who makes us alive, who brings things to mind, and who is transforming us more and more into the image of Christ. Lord, let us be those who are heavenly-minded for earthly good because the gospel is better news than we can imagine. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.